For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. everyone and welcome to epic realms today on epic realms we have an amazing guest he is a legendary author fabled game master writer creator i the list goes on and on he doesn't necessarily need an introduction but he's getting one anyhow ladies and gentlemen welcome ed greenwood to epic realms how you doing ed i'm doing fine hi everybody yes i am ed mm -hmm. it's <laughs> hell in here <laughs> so for those that don't know, which they should, Ed is the master of Forgotten Realms, uh, which is one of the largest campaign settings in Dungeons and Dragons. However, he is not limited to that, as you heard by the intro. He does all kinds of things. He has other, many other books, novels, series, anthologies, dear God, anthologies. <laughs> and we're going to talk about all of those tonight. But my question for you is, you weren't always the, you know, the Ed Greenwood of fame. You were just a, you know, a, a kid in Canada, weren't you? Yep. Where That's did, right. Did, where did you get, did you, did you start off role-playing at a super young age or did you, like, how did you get into role-playing? Uh, well, okay. There really wasn't role-playing mm -hmm. uh, as an industry, as a fantasy gaming thing. Yeah. Um, because when I was a little kid, Lord of the Rings hadn't been published yet. There were no role-playing games. There was a healthy board gaming industry, but you know, okay. it was heavily weighted in favor of 1890s classics like Steeplechase and Snakes and Ladders and stuff that were being brought back for Under the Tree every year. And I knew about role-playing because my dad was in the military, the Canadian military, um, specifically radar defense in the as the cold war got more and more frigid okay um and the ancient and by ancient i mean uh, we're going back to napoleonic times than before <laughs> um the germans had a game called kriegspiel and it was really officer training okay and everybody has used it since and you probably remember it as broken telephone oh yeah, or a yeah. camp game okay well what they used to do is they used to take all their junior officers and put them in different rooms of a house or a bunch of barracks or whatever they had. And some of them would have to be runners and they'd all have maps ruled into grid squares. And then they'd reproduce the fog of war by sending runners one place saying, ah, a report from the front. This, this place here is that this is happening. What are your orders, sir? And the guy would, give the orders and they go running off to the next room and says he says you're to do this and then, of course it was we were testing 
the fog of war. We were testing how good you were at decision making. And what happened when somebody comes back and says, all of a sudden there's tanks coming over the hill. What do you mean there's tanks coming over the hill? You know, and, and yeah. how you dealt with, okay. So that was called Kriegspiel and everybody has done it since. And that was the earliest role-playing. And that's the only sort of role-playing um, that plus, you know, capture the flag and versions of that. And there were versions of capture the flag that you played in um, wolf cubs and before you were considered safe and this this happened with guides and brownies too um before it was considered safe to run all over the place punching each other and grabbing a flag and you know um racing through a a, a danger potentially dangerous forest falling all over stuff um so to replace all that running around bit they had these things where you replace the flag with a message that had to be relayed oh so you turned it into a sort of spy message drop type game okay to take away the running it's it's sort of like you know when you when you're in a high school cafeteria or a gymnasium and somebody else no running because yeah it is running yeah For safety so yeah it was the same thing they were doing that so those were the only role playing because there was no industry i'm older than dirt <laughs> so what did you so so let me get this straight did you play those games then or did you like hear about them and then later when you know oh i played came... some of them um okay. with my dad and so on for fun okay um and i also played a, a venerable old game that's um been redone a number of times called diplomacy okay which is um a board game but done with orders and negotiations so it really has a role-playing element and right. this is the famous game that um got people arrested during the war because they'd be playing um diplomacy and they'd send a telegram um germany will you support me in my attack on france italy and then you know men in trench coats would show up your door and want to know why you're doing it i also played chess um and all, all the stuff you know with your grandparents you played euchre and all those yeah, card yeah, games yeah, yeah. and and the thing the thing that was really interesting about euchre for me was not the game just as cribbage was mind-numbingly boring after a while yeah but Still it was is. my <laughs> yeah it was mind-numbingly boring to my grandparents too so they would do things that absolutely made my jaw drop as a little kid like they deal all the cards face up and then they'd say oh you would have won that you would have won that you would have won that and they gather the cards again shuffle and pass it around the table or i'd be watching one of my grandpas says oh i'm going it alone and i'd run around behind the table and look at his cards and he had nothing he was bluffing the entire thing because wow. he was so bored with playing euchre you know after it, it, it's a get-together gossip session yeah, yeah. excuse like like most good beer and pretzels games are but yeah. when he was bored he would just like okay i'm going it alone and okay. you just to see what the mayhem that it, it's sort of like saying yeah i'm going to take the brakes off this car and drive it along the expressway and see what happens you know and, <laughs> and it's like wow but then it it almost makes it role play yeah because you're reading people's faces and you're seeing all the tells and of course that's what they were doing too can i bluff people by the way i lick my lips or change my expression or the way i finger my cards and rearrange them are they going to think i've got something that i don't have can i mislead them it was like never play poker with these people okay <laughs> but i mean 
I was basically bored by games like that anyway, the mm -hmm. totally abstract games. I even found chess boring for a bit um, because I wanted the tactical thing. Yeah. So I wanted a part of the board to be strategic. Like if, if you gave me a chessboard with a river across it and a bridge in the middle and a couple woods to hide in, all of a sudden it's way more interesting to me. And of course, then along comes my love of fantasy and science fiction and space opera and early war games like Jutland, which was played, um, you made your lone little model ships just out of pieces of cardboard. You laid them on the carpet or floor of a giant room. School gymnasium was usually big enough. And you played ships of the line um, in about, you know, the dreadnought era where you couldn't see very far. So you had a vague idea that ships were over there. And sure enough, you could see there were little cardboard cutouts somewhere over there on the other side of the room, but you didn't really have their range. You didn't know exactly where they were. And you'd, fire at them you know yeah. and it was it was a very interesting and it was played with rulers and and burst circles and stuff like that and then donald featherstone's airfix figures and all of his wargaming books i devoured all of them and then along came you see role-playing is much later you know so i was yeah. always i was already writing stories set in the forgotten realms it was a world for my fiction mm -hmm. when i was five and six years old long before there was a game about a decade before D, &D right. was published and I, now, now that you mentioned that and you mentioned that, I was like, you know, so for those that are listening, this is not the first time Ed and I have spoken. Yes. Uh, there, we, we've been on, I've hosted other podcasts where we've interviewed him. And now that he mentions that, I'm like, I'm an idiot because I already knew that. I remember that because we talked about it last time. And here I am doing the one faux pas that I listed for myself. Uh, I told myself, okay. don't ask the same questions that everybody asks. You know, which is not always impossible or it's not always possible. But at the same time, it's like, well, here I'm asking not only the same question other people might have asked, but I'm asking generically, not exactly, but I'm getting at the same point that I've already found out. And I've already gotten the answer last time on a podcast I was on. So <laughs> doesn't matter. It's OK. I know. Jeez. I know. Yeah, I know. Uh, so were you were you a good student in school? <laughs> um, well, it depends on which teacher you ask. I did graduate with 90s out of 100. Okay. Um, but I was bored crapless all the way through school. And I would often bring um, the latest fantasy or science fiction book and read it in class. You was, see, were those frowned upon in school? At oh, that time? yes, very okay. much so. Um, but you had to be able to listen with half an ear. Mm -hmm. And when the teacher saw you reading and tried to trap you, you had to be able to snap right back at them so they knew you were paying total attention to the class. And gradually, I managed to educate my teachers. Teachers, you know, they take a lot of educating. Right. Uh, right. Students have found this, you know, <laughs> over the years. It's that, that you know, some teachers don't realize the job of the teacher is to be educated by the students, right. not the other way around. Right. Uh, so it takes some of them a while to cotton on to this. But um, I, I managed to learn most of my teachers that I was probably going to be about a week ahead of what they were teaching, uh, unless it was math. I was terrible at math. Hold up some fingers. Amen to that. But, Amen yeah, to that. Well, I, I had a father who was a physicist, so um, he would, you know, well, don't you realize, son, isn't it obvious? No, it's not bloody obvious, <laughs> Dad. If it, it's obvious to you. 
and right. and of course I had I had horrible math teachers who would cover the blackboards all the way around the room with a huge long equation and say, "So you see again, we end up here, but there's a more elegant way of doing it." And they'd start rubbing out what they'd done while you were still trying to puzzle it out. They'd say, "You could jump from here to here if you just think." You'd go, "Kill me now!" Right, I'm done. Kill I'm me done. now before I build any bridges and they fall down and everybody falls to their desk because I don't get the math because you're not teaching me. So anyway, so I was, I was entertaining and I had a, a job for most of the time when I was in school, you know, so a teacher would say super silly, well, if you paid attention, Mr. Greenwood, maybe you'd get a good job when you graduate and leave the school. And I think I'm already writing novels and pulling down 40 grand a year. How much do you make again? <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't say that because right, I wanted right. to survive to the end of the day. Um, well, and you were writing stuff for magazines and stuff too, right? That's mm -hmm, some of the stuff yeah. you were doing way early on. If I, you know, if I recall. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, well, my father had trained me to this because when I was writing stuff, when I was five and six years old, you see, I was reading everything he had in his den. Okay. And he had everything from pulp novels and what passed for sleaze and porn in those days, Peyton Place, folks, forever <laughs> amber, really steamy stuff. Although I did find a, a battered paperback called um, The Nude Said No, and I devoured it and searched his library for years for The Nude Said Yes, never found it. <laughs> but anyway, um, but... I would write pastiches of the authors that inspired me. And they, they were not the nude said, no, they were Lorshan Saini. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I was Roger Zelazny, Michael Moorcock, all these, you know, and I would write my own and, oh, and various, what I would call first person, smart ass snark narrators. Um, Roger Zelazny did a bit of that, but you know, there were lots of, lots of them in the hard boiled private eye who would, the guy would, the main character would talk to the reader right the sort of sam spade you yeah know? yeah the damn light had been going on and off on off so i emptied my six shooter into it it was driving me nuts <laughs> i've been in this office 20 whole seconds <laughs> you know that sort of stuff yeah. so you you'd you'd, you'd copy stuff like that do it write a pastiche because i was forever running upstairs and embarrassing my dad in the middle of one of his dinner parties by saying dad dad this book was great do you have another one like it and i'd hold up some lurid paperback oh who trails she was staked out nude in the sun to die <laughs> it says the cover you know and my father would go <coughs> son <man. laughs> um well you know if you want another one of those you're gonna have to write it yourself that author died in 1943 oh okay and i'd run downstairs to the den and my aunt i was being my my mama died so i was being raised by my grandmothers and my maiden aunts and they'd grown up on farms in the depression so for paper you saved all the brown paper bags from the supermarket oh we got brown paper bags in those days kids plastic hadn't been invented yet bakelite had been but not plastic so and they would iron the paper bag flat and slit the sides up and save the pieces of paper and that's what's where you jotted stuff on and you gave it to the kids with crayons so i would i would write a pastiche and i'd show them to my dad because i was proud of them and my dad was tickled pink he thought they was hilarious and he'd take them into work so all these guys who are designing missile defense systems and radar to keep, you know, us safe from 
bombers coming over the pole, he'd pass them around. And they loved him. Hey, Bob, get the kid to write, uh, you know, a, a chase scene. So I'd do that. And he'd say, okay, a sex scene. And my father would say, he's five. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I, but I mean, I was learning to write. Right. By copying, doing pastiches of writers, good and bad, but I was learning their styles as I went without even realizing it. So, and then I, and I wanted to write my own fantasy stories, and that's where the realms came from. Okay. I was writing a setting for the, it was growing behind the stories. Right. And I think it's great. And a lot of people don't realize that having family support to support a person that's writing is insurmountable in their development. Uh, you know, if you if you wouldn't have had people go, hey, write this. Oh, hey, write that. Oh, this is great. You're doing a good job. Um, you know. Yep. You, and, you... and my father was a master reverse psychologist, too. Oh. If uh, He'd do things like, um, he'd say to my baby sisters, he, he'd, he'd put them in a room to play, the basement usually, with a small toolkit and a bunch of odd scrap lumber. And then he'd leave the room and he'd turn around as he was leaving, like Columbo used to do, you know, just one more thing, you know, he'd turn <laughs> around as he was leaving the room. And he says, no, when I come back, I don't want to see that any of those have been touched. And then he closed the door, knowing <laughs> no, about 10 well. seconds after he was up the stairs, they'd be into everything. <laughs> I, lo I love a good Columbo reference, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Some people are like, who the heck's Columbo? Well, ah, yes. You need to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look it up. Yeah. Watch the yeah, whole look it up. It's probably on Netflix or something. So at what point did did you did you get like Watsy? Not Watsy, it was TSR, wasn't it? It was TSR. TSR yeah. came to you. And I know you were working for magazines and, and doing stuff for them already with writings, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I was, I started writing for Dragon, well, okay, uh, it was about the time of issue 19 of The Dragon, as it was then known, that I subscribed to it and started getting it regularly. And I started, um, like many other people, saying, oh, I could do better than this. Right. Um, and in, in my case, it was, a, they brought out a box game called Divine Right, which is a fantasy board game. Okay, and the problem with Divine Right is it had uh, it was one of those games where it had a paper map board, um, a glor glorious color map of the fantasy world, and then a black border all the way around. And they wrote the rules on the border, and also had reinforcements and stuff that you bring in during the game. They have little outlines for you to put the little chits on, okay. so you can pl play the game. And one of the rules was for a place called Greystaff, which was a place where uh, it was supposed to be an ancient Neolithic site sort of thing. And you could sacrifice your own armies, slaughter them at Greystaff, and get an earthquake or a tsunami or okay. lightning bolt from the heavens. Yeah. And the rule ended in mid-sentence. So obviously there was something missing. And then there was uh, the, the counters that you punched out. There was a large southern kingdom called Shukasim. And in the rules, it had this many units, but on the counter sheet, it had this many more. So obviously there's something needed fixing there. So I wrote a fixing article with what we had done playing it. Just here's our house rules for fixing these little glitches. And they saved it for issue 34, which was their divine right 
uh, theme issue. But in the meantime, they they'd revived um, featured creature, which was a column they'd had earlier, yeah. as something called Dragon's Bestery, okay. which was a, a thing for monsters. And it said down at the bottom, anything published here is official as anything in the monster manual, and you'll get paid $25, $25, which was a lot of money. I was Canadian. The American yeah. dollar was worth about a third more than ours. And $25 was a lot of money then. Right. Um, I would say its spending power was equivalent to about 225 bucks today. So when you're a kid in school, that's a lot of yeah. comics. That's right. a lot of records. That's a lot of drinks that you shouldn't be buying. That's a, you know. Uh, yeah. So you have I, someone else buy for you. Yeah. So I grabbed my father's trusty old Underwood 8. And by the way, if those of you who want to um, learn how to write, um, not longhand, but using typewriters, an Underwood 8 is the perfect typewriter to start with if you can find one. Because if you drive your car into it, the car loses. <laughs> it's that massive okay uh, anyway um and i i started i wrote up a uh, a monster which was the cursed uh, and was published in dragon 30 and i was so chuffed to get this little postcard from um tim cask who was the editor uh, he sent out they just mailed out these three by five postcards they were green because tim was irish and they had celtic knotwork all the way around okay. the edge and it says he checked off your thing has been accepted expect to see it in a future issue uh, so i wrote a second monster which was the crawling claw that appeared in dragon 32 well i mailed it away this is yesteryear folks do not try this today and expect the same results right i mailed it away and 16 days later my issue of dragon came back with my monster printed in it and i said wow they must be desperate, <laughs> you know, because they, they obviously opened the mail and they had to retype it because yeah. it was just sent in typed. They had to just input it or keyline it, whatever they were going to call it, but they had to input it right then and there to get it into the issue. Wow, they're desperate. So I started writing monsters and I wrote so many that two things happened. One of them is they saved a whole pile of them for Dragon 40. And the other one was they paid attention to me. And when I, the next thing I did, I wanted to write something for me. So I wrote Gates. From, they retitled it from the City of Brass to Dead Orc Pass in one small step. Gates in AD&D. Okay. Of course, I'd originally called it Gates in AD&D. <laughs> you know, and all it was was going through all the fantasy novels I loved, from William Morris's The Wood Beyond the World, to The World of Tears by Philip Jose Farmer, to Roger Zelazny's Amber series, um, to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, everything that had gates, or what we now call portals, but and portal fantasy, but it was then just known as gates. And I just wrote them all up into a huge article of how you could use all these things in your games. And apparently, I vastly impressed the assistant editor of Dragon, Tim uh, Kim Bohan, um, because it was the first article he'd ever received that had footnotes. Okay. So that he he wrote me a letter accepting it uh, and saying are you coming to gen con this year well i am now right <laughs> and and where and he's he he took me for a stroll out in you see the, it was in the university of wisconsin parkside um campus which means you could just bash open these glass doors and out into these beautiful rolling lawns that look like a golf course. So we just went for a walk. He said, how would you like to be a contributing editor? And I said, great. Uh, 
what does it pay? He goes, that's the contributing part. Right. <laughs> but I loved it because, and he loved it too, because he was a journalist first and a gamer second, and he needed somebody he could assign stuff to. Okay. Because he got all this stuff that people just mailed him, you know, what they, what they call the slush, the over right. the transom. And he got all this stuff from inside TSR, which was stuff that wouldn't fit in the product. So, you know, the, the cutting room floor stuff here. Yeah. And he was trying to build each issue of the magazine. And they went on the issues gained and shrank by eight page signatures, depending on how many ads they'd sold. Right. So suddenly he needed something to fill, a fit around. So it would be really nice to have short stuff lying around on particular topics so he could add it as themes and take right. it away. And then he could turn around and say, hey, would you write? So the Ecology of series was an assignment. Oh, okay. Wizards 3 was an assignment. You know, he assigned it to me and, and he could get stuff back. And um, I did the nine hells, which I wanted to do for me. Right. <laughs> and, and so I was doing a mix of fun stuff, just whatever came into my head that went with D&D and went with the realms. And that's how TSR noticed the realms because I'm a shy Canadian. Um, okay, I've overcome the shy bit. <laughs> but so I always thought it was incredibly arrogant to say, hi, you've never heard of me. My name's Ed Greenwood. And I thought of a new way of rolling dice that none of you schmoes have thought of. So here it is. Right. I thought, oh, that's terrible. And I also was acutely aware because they kept telling us that every player who could red dragon as well as all the dungeon masters so i didn't want to say something definite like in the third room in the castle there are six orcs and their right. points are blah right. blah blah yeah, yeah, yeah some nib sitting at the table would have read the issue right. so he'd ko the dungeon master by metagame knowledge so instead i'd use a mouthpiece like elminster an unreliable narrator who says it's a rumor that there are orcs in that ruined castle but i don't credit it myself you know and then you can plant the idea without saying anything specific right. because you're not speaking as the omniscient so i just put the realms in that way and for my own players i considered that i was being fair to them because i was giving hints and stuff because they didn't bring their magazines to the table but right. they all read dragon so right. all they vaguely didn't Ed do something about a six-legged monster? What the heck was that again? <laughs> yeah. So, but that was sort of what their character might have heard in gossip inside the right. room. So you know, so, so they I wouldn't be doing... using out-of-character information in character or anything like that. Yeah. They they could legitimately have heard something along those yeah. lines. Yeah, and if it was a monster, it was now official. Right. And theoretically balanced were you playing at this time then were you oh, actually yes. role-playing so yeah. when did you start when did you when were you introduced to role-playing because obviously as you said you were writing when were you introduced to D D? so D D or role-playing in general like uh, not oh, role -playing. D, &D. Role we've already we've yeah. already covered the role yeah, play, but D dungeons yeah. and dragons um when the first three booklets came out of the original D D. Okay. And we bought them. We thought, oh, this is a really cool idea, but it's just going to devolve into an argument around the table. Right. But we did also buy Greyhawk, Blackmoor, and Eldritch Wizardry, the next three books. And they were far more impressive. They, you know, they added the Thief to the game. They added Mind Flayers, um, uh, Beholders, um, really cool magic items. So they were real idea hooks. And we played for a little bit and thought, this is cool. But it wasn't until 1978 when the player's handbook came out to join the monster manual. And I looked at them both and said, oh, this is really cool. 
this is Jack Vance's magic system from the dying earth mm -hmm. where you impress the spell in your memory by great effort and then once you cast it it's forgotten yeah which stops your magic user from becoming a machine gun right. boom fireball boom fireball boom lightning right, bolt boom, right. lightning bolt whatever we need to win you know um so and it turned it back into these are really cool um and at the same time we had the monster manual with all the monsters from mythology you know from everything from vampires to dinosaurs plus all these cool new ones all ranked against each other perfect this is now going to be the unofficial backbone or skeleton for my fantasy writing because it's going to keep me honest it's right. going to balance things into and then we all joined the waiting for gary to get the dungeon master's guide out which was a horrible wait and if you're old enough you remember dragon 21 which was combined with little wars had the tables for the dungeon masters the combat tables for the dungeon master's guide in it because he'd gotten them finished and he was acutely aware that dungeon masters were waiting for the book here's the tables so you can at least play for the rest right. of the year until we get the book out for gen con and and so i was on the i was uh dnd -er by then really enjoying it and jeff grubb a designer on staff at tsr wrote a position paper he was asked to um a proposal for a unified game world for the second edition of D&D. And because Dragonlance had taken all of the company's resources and two years of time, they were looking for a world that wasn't built around a single epic story, but was a kitchen sink world that they could put jungle adventures in. Right. Became Malatra, the living jungle. Um, Arabian adventures in, which became El Hadid. Oriental mm -hmm. Adventures in, which became, hello, Oriental Adventures. Right. So, I mean, and, and they had these pyramid modules and all sorts of things. Um, so they, I got a phone call from Jeff Grubb one day at the public library I worked at in um, the, a suburb north of Toronto, saying, hi, you don't know me, but my name's Jeff Grubb. I'm the designer at TSI. You know, you write the forgot, you, you're Ed Greenman. I said, mm-hmm. He goes, do you have a complete detailed world at home? Or do you just make this up as you go along? And I said, yes. And yes. <laughs> right. And we've, so, we've discussed in the past, like before when we talked, one of the major questions, because here's an urban fantasy thing that still to this day, every once in a while, I'll be at a gaming thing and, and I'll hear it at like a convention. And then I go over, it's like, well, I, I just so you know, I talked to Ed and this is the truth that you don't have, like, we, we know you have but we can see behind you, you've got a library of books. And we, we had to clarify this last time we chatted. It's like, did you, do you have a library? We have books that are written of every detail, like here's a city and a card catalog. And you told us the answer. No, you have a lot of stuff written down and it was, you know, all in, you know, boxes. And, but it's not like a library, like a, you know, no, big shelves are, and stuff. These are fun books I, I read for love and inspiration. And my rule books are all over here the fifth edition ones um the others are downstairs in another room i have books in every room of the house and all those papers are in two shipping containers in my yard mm -hmm. so <laughs> so i wanted to rebring that up and get that urban myth out of the way for new people that might not know because <laughs> yes, i've heard yes. it no joke i've heard it so so often that i'm like i'm so glad that we asked that question and got that you know got that taken care of when you're when you were gaming with your friends and you were gathering them how did you did you bring the idea to them did you meet up because of role-playing uh when you first you know kind of got your group together was it 
you know, birds of a feather kind of flock together? Did you already know each other and hang out for other things? Oh, yeah. Most of it that we came to play together, we were friends at school and, and we already read fantasy books and walked around talking about them, you know, impatiently awaiting the next one in the series. But no, there was a there was a brilliant young lady named September who was a, a, about a year or two older than the rest of us um, at the time, who was what I would call the perfect dungeon master. Okay. I mean, she put on funny voices. She dressed in costumes. And we would gather in a ravine. You see, one of the things we could do, we, we lived in a fairly wealthy area, um, but it had ravines, meaning it had to stop floods, the rivers that ran through it, they left little ribbons of wild nature to stop erosion. Okay. So they were public parks, but not groomed whatsoever. And there was one area where a particular part of the Don River went through a sandy area. And it, every time there was a storm, it cut new sandbars. But um, a, the river curled around sandbars. So if you could wade across the river or take stepping stones, you ended up on this almost an island of sand that changed all the time and had it was overhung by all the trees growing there which is what kept it from washing away so that would be your gaming session okay which means you bring food bring games in your knapsacks sit around in the ravine for a um a weekend afternoon and just game for hours and that's um september inspired us all to do that she was a great dm and we didn't know it but she was dying of cancer already she didn't know it at the beginning and so of course she very soon died and that left the rest of us to do our own thing and we sort of went our separate ways and followed our separate interests and then finally got together again um but but we were already together because we sang in the same church choir okay. or we were sat beside each other in high school you know did you play other role-playing systems as well around that oh time? yeah um, Are there any that really stand out to you or things that you really like, man, I'd love to play that again or anything of, of that nature? Um, Call of Thulu, um, Traveler, although Traveler was almost a joke because um, you rolled up your character to start and usually died because you had to do all these roles to see what skills you had, what military service you've done, and usually you died in the rolling so it was like, okay, start over again. It's like, yep. really? You know, <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, yeah, that Traveler was great. And of course, every time they published a new stellar map of a new, the Spinward Reaches or whatever, one part of it, you go, ooh, got to have that, you know. And so uh, as they laid the gal galaxy out in front of us, but yeah, that and Call of Thulu, uh, but it was mainly D&D. &D. Okay. We tried all the other games. We tried Tunnels and Trolls when it came out, Chivalry and Sorcery. Um, Superhero 2099, Villains of Vigilantes came along a little later. Um, and we were also devouring everything that was in Dragon, from the backgammon board to Snit's Revenge to um, awful green things from outer space later on. You know, So we were playing all these fun little board games. And of course, we were also being dyed in the wool war gamers. Uh, Fortress Europa, Dragnach Austin, you know, all these games were you punch them out and you have 4,000 playing pieces right. and a board that covers half your wall. And in fact, I remember going into a, a long gone gaming store in, in Toronto called the Battered Dwarf. And John Dunn, the proprietor, had a sheet of galvanized steel hung on the wall 
behind his checkout counter with counter magnets holding a game board on it and all the units were there and he'd say you got 10 minutes got 15 minutes we'd say yeah he goes move the germans and we do one move and then we come back a week later to see what the allies had done in Virginia. and the game was very slowly unfolding in the store and everybody would come in and look at it meaning they had to look past john above his head which means inevitably they saw all the new stuff that he had displayed in the store uh, there's a marketing boy right there if i ever heard one <laughs> yeah it, and, and i mean this was this was a a store in a converted house we were in the parlor or front living room of a converted house he'd only uh, rented one half of it off the front stairwell the rest was other tenants so there wasn't a lot of stuff in the store it wasn't like a gaming store these days where you go in and there's tons of stuff for miles right. and there were no collectible card games right then right. none there were card games but i mean you know the the most collectible was hey this year there's playboy playmates on this regular deck of playing cards right, or right. here's the latest baseball or hockey players for this season yeah. on regular playing cards collect them all right but i've already got the whole yeah you get the deck deck yeah when you're um when you're building when you're role-playing with your friends and you're building you know new worlds not you know obviously forgotten realms but other you know worlds as we mentioned you play other games it's is there a key that you have for making your own you know people that are listening that might be gms uh, that might be new to it if you're making your own world is there one or two you know little quick notes that you'd be like this is a key that that's really helpful for building for world building uh, as a GM? Hmm. Well, over the 55 odd years or 56 years I've been doing this, I've tried just about every way. Mm-hmm. And there's no one true way. There's what works for you. And that can differ over time. And it can differ from project to project. And it can differ with who you're doing it with. So if I was doing a role playing setting, um, right away, I asked myself, what am I going to use this for? Like, am I going to write novels? Am I going to write short stories? Am I going to do art set in? Are there, am I going to do little board game mini games, like chase the king through the haunted castle or something like that? Or am I just going to be role-playing? Answer that. If I'm going to be role-playing, how long does it have to last for? Am I building a campaign I want to last forever, like the Forgotten Realms, a world? Or is it a campaign I want to last a summer? say or one or two years and it could be something and and okay here's a perfect example of that game of thrones is a shorter campaign because you are literally using up the characters you are touching off something in which characters will be eliminated if you watch the samuel l jackson youtube video where he gives the guide to game of thrones part way through he says you know something the effect of when the starks are there he says nice family don't get attached you know (laughs) (laughs) because you know they're all gonna go Um, right so that's a a, you're building in a time limit that is already built into say a call of thulu campaign if you play it rules as written because everybody's going to lose their sanity yeah and stop you know their character is no longer able to do anything except blurble away in a corner right and not function you know so that character better have kids or better train an apprentice because they're going to have to take over 
when when grandpappy just sits in the corner and wets himself because he he's he, he's seen too many great old ones you know so right. um so you you're thinking about how long do you want this to last and then you're thinking what do i want it to be do my players like dungeon crawls do they like hack and slash do they want to bring back monster trophies or do they not want to draw their weapons at all and spend four or five hours in court intrigue good my lord i could not help but notice when the lady stepped out last evening that she had two garters on not just one does that mean something to you and then glide away so if that's what they want to do and play you're gonna to have to set up um feuds intrigues rivalries between houses you know the good old romeo and juliet two houses alike in dignity you know <laughs> you know you're gonna to have to set up that thing yeah um, and then you have to the world has to make sense it not only has to be geographically interesting like having a bay with city-states around the bay and then a crossroads thing in the center that's going to get all the traffic and be strategically important so somebody might want to conquer it and for a good example of that uh read guy k's uh, guy gavriel k's fantasy classic tagana there is it it ends up in one kingdom which is the crossroads kingdom you didn't set out to be that way but it is that way it starts there and it ends there uh but anyway um you set up with something so it's going to be interesting it's going to drive the traffic into conflict right. and then you decide how what sort of conflict you want there's almost no interest without some sort of conflict but are you playing with your younger siblings so that you don't want anything sexual and you don't want people killed right so are you in effect doing um my little pony slash harlequin romance with or Barbara Cartland romance with kissing is as hot as it gets. Um, you know, are you setting that up? Or do you want Game of Thrones? Do you want people butchered in front of your eyes? And, and do you want people shouting in triumph and pounding the gaming table because they killed the Tarasque? Or they, they took all the eyes off of the holder and right. now they want to fry and eat the eyes because that'll <laughs> be cool, right? Right, no, right, right. So you, you have to figure out the, the style of play and who you're because if, you, if you get it wrong, yeah because if you get it wrong they're not going to want to go on playing right right so those are how i would approach the design of something and then the other thing i would say if it's your first time designing anything any fantasy setting whether it's for a one shot play session or i think this will last about six play sessions before we run out of steam or a fantasy world you're going to write novels on for the rest of your life start small start in one spot and think of it outwards from there what is the most cool stage you want to have mervyn peak um the fantasy author wrote a marvelous um trilogy well four book set now a five book <laughs> set posthumously but uh, the gorman gas trilogy and the central character in this is the huge haunted castle of gorman gas so if you've got a focal point, start there and there decide well, how does that push my buttons? Where do I want to start? What right. do I want to have happen? And then, then you can literally, oh, let's, let's say it is a castle or a country mansion. Okay. Okay. I'm going to take a, 
I'm going to walk around this country mansion in my mind, either inside or outside the mansion. I'm going to look in all directions. What's over there? Oh, mountains. Write down mountains, range of mountains. Are they a barrier keeping me from this horrible kingdom full of goblins over there? Or the place where the dragons live that we don't want to go, but right. the dragons come to eat us every so often? Okay, so you write that down. And there's a huge wood there, the wood that stretches for miles. Nobody knows where it's far side. Okay, write that down. So you see, you're, you're now building outwards from your castle. But if there are all sorts of um, foreigners, outlanders coming to the castle, envoys to see the king, they've got to come from somewhere. So there's got to be other places, rival places. Where are they? Are they across the sea? Okay, where's the sea? Right. You know, so you, you you build it that way. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, and I'm and I'm just gonna briefly bring this up. You mentioned the word harlequin romance. Mm -hmm. And there is a rumor that I heard that you may or may not have been involved in a book of some sort of that type. Would you care yes. to enlighten a little bit? Uh okay. There are <laughs> there are ongoing contests out there where friends of mine are trying to guess which Harlequin. I wrote so I'm not going to tell you which one because they're it's it's a lifelong fun game for them and I want somebody to win it fair and square by guessing right and I've already set down the rule you can't just say is it this one is it this one is it this one until you've been through all right know, couples of, no 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 you have to you get so many asked it's like accusations in the in the game yeah. flu okay so uh, yes I have written a Harlequin romance under a pen name and I have also rescued Harlequin romances written by others. Because here's, here's the thing about writing novels. Many, many, many people can start a book. And then they bog down and can't finish it. I'm guilty. Guilty. Guilty okay, as charged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, the way around that is different for every person. And I will, I will give you... Uh, the, the fun little thing, the rock video method of writing a story. Okay, I tell this all the time. Go onto YouTube, type in Madonna like a prayer. Turn the volume off. Because you don't want to hear the music. Because mm -hmm. it, it, the music affects your mood yeah. as you watch it. Yeah. And you don't want to hear the lyrics. Yeah. All you want to do is watch that video. And you can use other ones, but it has to be a video that tells a story. Right. Not a video that shows you the guitar player's pelvis and then cuts <laughs> to the and then back to the. It has to be something that tells you a story, and you're just paying attention to what they put on screen and for how long. What do they show you? What what images are there, and how many story beats and 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 does it tell a coherent, satisfying story in two minutes or six minutes or four minutes, right. whatever it is, and you just sort of study them. What stories work for you? Okay, and then. From that, you go, okay, I need to write the beats of my story, the big scenes. Like if you were writing the, um, the Fellowship of the Ring, okay, there's the meeting bit, the un you know, the, where they all get together. There's, you're, you're going to have a big battle. You're going to have the Council of Elrond. You're going to have a big battle and in getting into Moria and so on. Uh, and you take, three by five recipe cards because i'm old that's that's all we had you can just print them out on your computer on sheets of paper and you need the floor or your bedspread uh, make make the bed first or right. a table whatever you got and lay them all out on it and then you put them in order these are the big scenes i want to have in my book and then you put blank pieces of paper in between them 
and say what and draw an arrow for that scene arrow up to this next scene what's the minimum i have to tell the re reader to get from here to here point so a, that B, that yeah. scene will have meaning and impact like do i have to explain who those six evil princes are before i see them all killed yeah i do so that has to happen somewhere before that so you That's write a nice those, little trick yeah yeah you write those on the thing and just write them all down and then stop trying to do what i learned to do what everybody who learned by because we wrote longhand or on a typewriter right either way you tell the story chronologically from beginning to end and that is far more orderly and easy to keep in your head that's how you bog down whereas if you take all these pieces of paper or cards that you've laid on the table and you just pour it all into one huge computer file and then save it please save it save several versions of it so that when you <laughs> mistakenly screw it out you still have it okay then you then you could start working everywhere you can you can add a little bit about the gems that were all over the king's um or or the the queen or the princess is is at a feast right their whole front is glittering with polished gems and you want to make up some new sorts of gems and what they look like you yeah. type in that little bit and then you go over here and you because you just overheard in real life one guy being cuttingly rude to another guy and you said oh i'll have to remember that that was really good when you put it in over here right you're gonna yeah. have two nobles yeah. fighting and then you just build the novel in little bits and that's another way to build the novel so you don't bog down awesome nice <laughs> now we've we've mentioned forgotten realms everybody I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people that are listening to the podcast and the stream and would be remiss if i didn't at least touch a little bit upon forgotten realms which obviously we've we've mentioned on here quite a bit but you've done so much and there have been so many authors now that have come in and picked up and written in your world people that are fans of yours uh we've had a few of them on here eric's got to be for one, you know, came on and like was a fan and then got to flush out parts of Waterdeep. So for you, what kind of work do you do to help, you know, people that are writing in your world? Uh, obviously, you don't have an ego about your world, but there's still you have stuff written down or ideas or like this is kind of what's in here. And I and some of them have mentioned they'll get ideas from you or you'll say, well, these are here and you know whatever so what is kind of the process when another author is working in forgotten realms and was writing in that world and how was your interactions with them usually okay sure uh i was never on staff at tsr or at wizards okay, okay i was always just a freelancer okay and i always overwrote in the early days until they asked me to please stop doing it because it made too much extra work for them but at the beginning it was a boon because they'd ask me for oh ed can you uh can you just write up a little adventure? We only need 4,000 words and 20,000 words later. Right. They, but they just chop it because they really only needed 4,000 words and they take all the extra stuff and throw it in a barrel and it would be another product. Um, uh, Paul Jaquez, now Janelle Jaquez, um, got um, most of what was in FR5, the Savage Frontier, because it was stuff I overwrote for Waterdeep in the North. It was the North part of Waterdeep. And they said, no, we can't fit all this. Oh, here. <laughs> and they got a new product out of it. Okay. So I was always doing that. And unofficially behind the scenes from the very beginning of the realms and up until today, like as in earlier today, 
whenever anybody's working on the realms, they know they can shoot me an email or pick up the phone and call me and, or contact me on Twitter or Facebook. And then I'll take it to an email so that it's not shared with the world. Right. And yeah, I will give them lore. I will suggest things. I will say, well, there's a skeleton buried in that closet. Oh, you don't even know where the closet is. Let me show you. <laughs> I, and then there are people, um, dedicated people, uh, particularly uh, Eric Logan Boyd in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and George Krashos in Australia, who have made fan careers out of explaining away inconsistencies in the lore and filling in all the backstory. And um, just today, I sent some language stuff. We, all, we work on lexicons of Dwarvish, Elvish, the Orc, the Orc tongue, Giant tongue, um, Alzado, the old, the old Kalashite tongue. And so we're right. constantly adding words to the vocabularies and putting sentence construction in so Dungeon Master can have an incantation or can, can have an inscription. And that sort of stuff we trade back and forth all the time. So yeah, I always help unofficially. It's for free. It's for fun. And you don't have to use it. Right. Like if I'm if I'm talking to a wizard designer, they will usually say, "Hey, what have you got on?" and then fill in the blank. And I will tell them. And they understand. You don't have to use this. You can do your own thing. But it's here as a weave in the tapestry. I can see the whole tapestry. So I know that if you do something like this, it weaves this together with that. If you need it to be different for a story reason, that's fine. You're, you, you've got the keys to the vet. You're driving it. I expect right. you to take it for a spin. But this is what I do and why. So you know what you have to fit in with to make the overall tapestry um, that we've been weaving for 55 years richer right. and hang together so that somebody who bought something 40 years ago doesn't open a, a brand new product and everything is different. And it's like, but, but, but for 30 odd years, I've been using... You know, so right. I mean, I'm still and now that Dungeon Masters Guild is available as an outlet, I'm working with lots of folks to do stuff. I did the Border Kingdoms with Alex Kammer um, last year, um, which was the unfinished bit of the uh, setting that was I kept getting short circuited on polyhedron and so on, right. um, dying under me before I could finish that those cities south of the Lake of Steam. And right now. Alex Cameron and Alan Patrick and I are working on a Thay product. Okay. And um, a bunch of other gamers are working on Rashomon. Joe Rasso is helming that one. And, and he just like hit me up on Discord and we talked about, hey, what about this? Or do you have anything on that? I, so I just handed him. Nice. But, it, but it, you know, it's going to be his baby. And before I've already worked with Steve Fiddler of Orpal Dice Press on um, the Elminster's Ecologies, or rather, um, a minster's granddaughter okay. <laughs> is, and, and they were literally biomes, like deserts of the realms, yeah, forests yeah. of the realms. And we went all over that. And I, and I worked with another group of people, a whole bunch of people to work on Elminster's Candlekeep Companion, you know, stuff like that. And it's just, it's just fun to help. It's fun to let other people have their, because when you cross the Rubicon of selling the realms, which I did back in 1986, so it's a shared world then it's not my world anymore. Mm -hmm. Everybody should be welcome in it. Everybody should get a chance to write their thing in it. All I ask is that 
when you come into it, you don't just say, oh, everything that was already written and published is wrong. I'm just changing it. No, no, no. Right. You can change it, but give me an in-world explanation of how it changed, why yeah. it changed, how we got from there to here. Don't just say, oh, everything the previous was wrong. I'm ignoring it. I'm doing it. No, no, no. Weave into the existing tapestry. You can cut a hole in the tapestry and say, I need a window in the tapestry right here. Good. But stitch the edges and make it look nice. Right, make it right. look like part of the tapestry. <laughs> <laughs> How much when, when we're talking, since we're talking about, you know, other people working on stuff and creating it. How much involvement did you have with any of the video games that came out? Neverwinter, Neverwinter Nights, the Baldur's Gate, things like that. How much involvement did you have with those? Early on, and we're talking the SSI games okay. back then, um, I had fairly high involvement, but it was hands-off involvement. It was, okay. hey, Ed, what have you got on this? And then they would then throw the chunks of lore. To okay. the outside licensee. And then, you know, I wasn't even supposed to know who the outside licensee was because okay. I wasn't a staff member. You know, right. so this is a, right. a trade secret. Yeah. And you know, it was like I in fact I even had an, an interesting thing years ago where the new edition of D D, I got a call from a, a gentleman um who was the lawyer for TSR at the time who wanted to know why I needed to get copies of these books. And it was and and it was and with it was coming the new Forgotten Realms setting. And I explained to him that they were sending it to me for consistency purposes because I created the setting. And he immediately legally cautioned me, don't tell lies like that, you know, because you'll get in real trouble. <laughs> because he assumed that I was lying, that I hadn't created the setting because as far as he was concerned, the company owned the setting. So right. who was this guy? You know, so, but I mean, yeah, so there are times like that. It's, but, but yeah, um, there were, increasing involvements uh i i actually did a voiceover and some stuff for turbine when they redid the haunted halls of evening star oh. and expanded it so i've done some voiceover work uh and for outside the realms and other companies i've worked on computer games um the old uh, bioware um i did uh, the, worked on the two towers game okay but, you know we're going way back yeah 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 know? where yeah. games had diskettes and you loaded them in. Right. Um, I've done some voiceover work and, and been asked to, okay. to portray stuff, but I I've, I've haven't yet put on the video capture suit with right. the light bulbs all over it. And um, because for one reason, I am no longer the action hero I once was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and you don't do much with like the storytelling or the, you know, how the stories play out in some of those at all. Uh, I've had, some consultation with some of them okay. more so with ones outside the realms okay. like I, I i designed the story for a, a computer game called mages of australia okay from borealis studios and i'm working on another one now that i'm not allowed to tell you okay about. <laughs> that's fine i i understand but, but but no by and large when it comes to actual programming that's done in-house by a yeah. studio yeah and where they want the story to go, that's the sort of thing they jealously guard because they don't want a leak or whatever. Right. So although I can tell where the story's going because, hey, I've been writing fantasy longer right. than most of these people have been alive, and they're asking me to detail this place, this castle, this city, right, right. this haunted river, I can see where this is going. You know, if there's a haunted river that has dragons layering in caves all the way along it, guess what? You're right. going to end up fighting those dragons. You know, <laughs> it's sort of obvious. But... um they deliberately don't tell me and I deliberately don't ask. Right. That's the, 
and, and this is going to sound terribly sexist, but I'm old. That's the gentleman's agreement, to use the old phrase, which is, you know, masculine gendered. I, but it works with the ladies, too. You, <laughs> you come to this polite agreement that there are certain things I won't ask and you won't tell. Right. Uh, I think the U.S. military has a phrase, don't ask, don't tell, which now means something completely different. Right. It didn't right. back in the old days. Yeah. It, it, it meant that y y it was a need to know to use the older military phrase. And I understand that, so I don't ask. So besides Forgotten Realms, you had a bunch of other series that aren't necessarily set in the Forgotten Realms. Uh, whether you want to, you know, give us a little brief blurb about them. Uh, there's the Band of, Band of, oh, of course, my handwriting is horrible. Band the, of Four. Uh, yes, the, uh, yes, that one. Falcon Far, the novel of uh, Niflheim. Uh, what yeah. can you tell us about those? About sure. those series, how those came about? Uh, there was a gentleman, um, no longer with us now, I'm afraid, Brian Thompson. He was head of TSR's books department. We became very good friends. Uh, he would call me weekly and we'd chat for hours about life, the universe, and everything. Um, and when uh, he rejoined Tor, Tor Books, mm -hmm. um, uh, Tom Doherty's magnificent fantasy and science fiction publishing house, um, one of the things he wanted to do is, hey, let's do D&D, &D, but with the serial numbers filed off. And I said, what do you mean? He says, tell me a good old fun, low swords and sorcery lunch bucket fantasy, but use the four D&D &D character classes, magic user, fighter, um, cleric, and thief. So that's what the band of four books are. Okay. Band of four. And, and there's four. A, yeah. Ta-da. I'm um, that. And the, the thing about the, the um, Band of Four books is there is this cool palace I put into it, which is shifting, changing constantly, magically. And it became a central character. So the fifth book in the, in the Four Book series is all about the palace. It's the history of the palace. Um, and then the other one, the Niflheim books, there's two Niflheim books, and they were, uh, hey, Ed. Gary Gygax went one way with the drow and it was really popular, particularly in Bob Salvatore's novels. Mm -hmm. But what if you go back to the root Norse mythology, the Doc Elfar and the Zvart Elfar? Mm -hmm. Okay. And what if we take that and you give us a dark elf setting that isn't drow and doesn't have lulz and doesn't have matriarchy and doesn't have all that stuff so you can actually see the dark elves in a different way and okay. um i did it from the point of view i wanted to do a fish out of water book so i i decided that my um dark elves they had a religion or cult or belief of beauty physical beauty and one of the ways you stay beautiful is you don't do hard for manual labor because you might get scars you might cut your fingers off in the ch in the chainsaw whatever so you raid the surface world and take human slaves okay and it goes from the point of view of a human male as it happens who does all the forge and smithy work for a particular um dark elf um city and what we see right near the beginning of it, he's planning to escape. He hates his overlord, who is this 
female dark elf who comes along and flogs him regularly. And circumstances are going to throw them together and they're going to have to depend on each other even though they hate each other's guts because I thought that would be a very interesting story to tell. Yeah. And evidently did well enough they immediately wanted a sequel so there it was. And then then Brian died and everything changed. And so that ended there. Um so the next thing I did for Tor was with um David Hartwell who has also unfortunately died <laughs> and he wanted me to do a steambook steampunk book so there's a one book standalone called the iron assassin yes it was going to be a series and then david died so now it's not again <laughs> and you also have a paizo book for pathfinder oh the, yeah, wizard's, uh, wizard's mask. mask which yeah uh, i have to say that's one of the most unique and fun fun books i love the concept of that yeah. story because it was very unique and uh, just a little bit different when you're writing tie in fact fiction like that. Uh, cause obviously it's not something you created, but it's a, like a tie in. Do they, do they ask you to, you know, stay within the confines of the system for that? Or did they just say, Hey, you're at Greenwood, do whatever you want. Uh, it was closer to the second, but it wasn't do whatever you want because yeah. James Sutter, who was running the fiction line was yep. a friend of mine and we could talk back and forth and because of what we wanted to do in the book, we were crossing the borders from one kingdom to another. Mm -hmm. And Galarian was brand new then. Right. Just come out in one book, I think called the Inner Sea Lands or the Inner Sea. Yeah. Um, we hadn't seen Galarian in all its glory. So I had to conflab with him. Okay, you've got this kingdom here and this very different kingdom right next door. Right. What's the transition right. zone going to be like? if my characters are crossing through it. And we also had this little difficult thing because what we had was this small female halfling with a guy and they were working and traveling together. And we were both sensitive to the fact we don't want it to seem like creepy older male hitting on young girl. Right. And I said, yeah, but they're not even both the same race. Right. And he goes, that never no mind. That's still uh, an optic we have to. Okay, fair enough. Um, you know, and, and I wanted them both to be uh, without any sex. I wanted them to both be like fellow soldiers in the same foxhole. They got comfortable with each other. Right. Presence, even though they started out not understanding each other. Right. Or like that did. Other. And I, I, when I when I went through that, it, I totally got that, and I thought that that was really well done. Because, thank you. Uh, but that, you see, that's the thing: a story should be a journey for the characters, and it should be interesting, and there should be something in it that the reader can relate to. Going, oh, I've been in those sort of awkward situations, or oh, how is she going to handle this? Right. Or um, because then it then it immediately the story means more to you, rather than. And then they killed another orc. And then they opened the door and killed the next orc. What's behind door number three? <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, from there, you did, uh, uh, you started the Ed Greenwood group. And that's the last time I chatted with you. You were promoting Helma, uh, Storm Talons. Uh, all kinds of really good books and stories came out of that. Um, and I don't know, uh, I, I, you know, a couple people that have been on in the past have were really sad about how that came to be at the end. Uh, would you like to talk uh, about that at all? There's still things I can't talk about. Yep. It, and but, I understand yeah. that. I understand that. 
the the short form is there is no more money okay so it had to go defunct okay and because i do not intend to die being a dick i gave the rights to all of their work back to the authors right so that they can republish them if they just file off the specific things yeah for the settings and what I did was different settings for every genre and subgenre. You know, one for space opera, one for high fantasy, one for low fantasy, right. one for um, portal fantasy that's vaguely gothic. But you know, the sort of same sort of stuff you'd mine in Call of Thulu. Or, yeah. You know, that's sort of. So I was doing different world settings for each of these things, and at the moment they're all just lying quiet. Um, well, I sort out shutting the company down and you know all that stuff, uh, but. So in the meantime, um, I had heart surgery, COVID hit, everything changed. And what COVID meant for a lot of my friends, and I've been you know, working in the gaming design and writing and being a book collector and working in public libraries too for like 50 odd years. And all of the people all across the world who had pet back burner projects, they'd never had time for. Right. They looked at COVID and said, this is my chance. So a lot of them emailed me or Facebooked me or phoned me and say, hey, Ed, could you do a monster? Or could you do a villain? Or could you just do up this you know, city or whatever? And so I, I have been tearingly busy for the past year and a bit helping everybody else get their pet projects in because I want to see all these things. Yeah. I want them on my bookshelves. I want them on my gaming table. And I achingly understand their desire to get their pet project out there so if i can help i'm gonna so that's what i've been doing now so as a result i haven't been writing too many of my own novels now i've been helping everybody else with it and there are big time-consuming things like uh the fate of the norns box set i'm working on ask Cleath, or excuse me the one thing i have to say people who speak modern gaelic go no it's not Ascliath, it's Ascliath, or whatever. There is only one problem. Modern people alive today will argue three different pronunciations for that city, which is, by the way, Dublin. Okay. Right. But but the the Gaelic name, the old Gaelic name for it, at the time we write about, which is the Vikings conquered it in the 790s AD, and they hung on to about eight. 860s AD before they were pushed out and we're we're doing a role-playing game which is not my role-playing game it's Andrew Volkoskis's role-playing game Fate of the Norns but we're we're looking at Viking rule Dublin and around 835 AD so I am designing a complete detailed city if you don't care about Vikings and you don't want to set your campaign in the real world you can just file off some of the Norse names but the intent is eventually it's going to be a living city in the same way that TSR meant living city in the old days. Um, the, we will be doing follow-up products with adventures and more non-player character packs and detailing the city. And we're going to super detail the city in a series of books, not all in the first box set, but the first box set will give you what's in every building in the city as an overview. And about the eastern third of the city will be super detailed. So for every character, every building you walk into, there'll be at least one character detailed. And that character will have a dirty secret that if you 
find out you can maybe work with them or manipulate them or blackmail them or whatever <laughs> and, and it's so you're going to get a living city you know you're going to know where the water comes from you know you're going to know where people empty their chamber pots into nice. and where it goes you're going to know all the trade flows of the city and this is happening in the celtic twilight ragnarok right. the world is turning darker the sun is no longer in the sky the crops are failing so and king citric the one-eyed king and he's one-eyed because as a teenager he did a blot or sacrifice to odin so he plucked out one of his eyes just because odin only has one right eye. so he's on the throne and he's managed to gather together um the whole slave trade for the worlds into this and all the money's coming with it so it's a city where money is pouring in and all these traders are pouring in merchant traders and it's therefore a good adventuring thing and i'm going to detail every last business so i'm gonna do the legwork so you can have a fun fantasy city to play in that's amazing and we do have for those that are listening or who are in the live stream we do have the link um you can get most of the fate of the Norn stuff uh, through the drive through RPG link we have on there that's available so far. Uh, our website also has the link there as well. Um, oh, and I should add one thing here. Yeah. The, the designer of this, Andrew Volkoskis, designer of the game, uh, who is also the publisher, Pendlehaven, his previous Kickstarter, the one that's just ending, is called Children of Eriu, which does the Irish. And he made the updates to that public oh not just for backers and nice. in them he talks a bit about ask Leath, the the box set so you can get a closer look at it because we haven't yet done the launched the kickstarter for um this box set it's going to be the ultimate viking kickstarter i've written a novel called the one-eyed king um michelle franklin has written a novel the misadventures of mindel um uh, Stephen P. Pearl has written a novel, which I, uh, <laughs> the last word of the title is Spear, but I'm trying to remember the rest of it. Um, should be somewhere. Uh, here on my desktop, he's going to kill me. Um, That's there, all right. There's a, there's a graphic novel um, done, um, the the story part of it done by Andrew. Um, and they're all going to be part of this Ultimate Viking Kickstarter, which hasn't yet started. Right. So, I mean, you're not missing anything yet, and I'm not pumping it. I'm just making you aware of if you're interested in this at all that's where you can find out more well maybe when that does come out on kickstarter we can have you and him come back and chat about it how's that sound that sounds sure, great to sure me. people would would love to, oh, yeah. to have that and 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 chat about it um you gonna be are you doing anything uh, are you are you doing gen con are you doing any online things coming up um i don't think i can do gen con this year okay um i will be doing phantasm which is a local peterborough ontario con okay. um i hope to get to game hall con but at the moment the border is closed okay and i can't right. and the way things are trending around me we have a fourth wave in this province uh i may not physically be able to attend game hall con okay um uh, so we're, we're still playing that one by ear um there is a gaming lounge in curtis ontario um well actually just outside whitby on on highway two uh called the critical hit gaming lounge and they want me to do a writing workshop oh. there and so i'll be doing that and and people should go online and look for critical hit gaming lounge or something uh, and and see if 
announcements for that because that's still being arranged. Okay. okay, we'll see if one of our mods can get the link in our in our stream okay. and then we can pull it up cool. on our website. Yeah, it, it, may, it may not actually be there yet right. because um, Dominique and Valerie, who run Critical, may not have put something okay. up yet. We might still be talking, but those are the the sort of um, and and I do stuff online, like with Lord Gasumba, Jay Scott, uh, Greyhawk stuff, and that's coming up. And and this Saturday, I'm I'm yet again online with Quest for the Cure, as we as our our party of intrepid bumbling characters uh, continues to um, um, try and quest to save the universe <laughs> and ah. because that's what we do. <laughs> yes. That's what we should all do. Actually. Yes. Uh, you are at the Edverse on Twitter. Uh, yes. Do you run the, the fans of Ed Greenwood page or is that somebody else? I no, have... that's run uh, fans of Ed Greenwood page. Oh boy. I'm trying to remember all the people who run it, and I can't at the moment. Um, uh, Jeff Thetford and Curry Russell, who also do the Mages and Sages podcast and have me on fairly regularly as a guest, um, they set stuff up. And, and okay. I don't have time to do any of that right, stuff. Right, right. You know, and, and computers, when I was a kid, computers were people. <laughs> they they should rules. still be. Yeah, and then they were climate-controlled buildings with guys in white lab coats, and the computer filled the entire building and had all right. these little tapes, tape rolls that went around. Um, so you know, now that I have these little, you know, I, ha I had Macintoshes for years, and it was like, oh, wonderful. And my father would look at it and go, huh, that is more computing power than three of our buildings. And I go, so, Dad, why aren't you you know, producing it three times that he'd say, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm becoming my father as I get older. It's like, why aren't you doing all this stuff? Shut up. <laughs> awesome. Well, we thank you for coming here and joining us on the podcast. Uh, oh. For those that are watching the live stream, we will get to all of your questions as soon as we're done recording the podcast. Uh, so much appreciated, Ed. Thank you for being thank here. You. Thank uh, you for having me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, coming up, you spoke earlier of James Sutter. James Sutter is going to be with us on September 20th. Uh, wow. He is amazing. He's agreed to come with us. He's got his own books. Obviously, he was kind of one of the leading roles in all of the uh, Pathfinder Paizo uh, novels and as well as the role-playing system. So he's going to be joining us as well. Uh, we aren't going to be doing anything for Labor Day yet. Uh, we're not going to be having a specific podcast episode, but we may be doing something extra special on the stream. I'm just still hammering out the details. Um, October 18th, we're going to have Jeff Tidball. So you want to hang out for that. Jeff Tidball is the owner of Atlas Games. Uh, he also just uh, purchased um, Prolific Games, and we're going to talk about that little merger and everything else that he has to do in the uh, tabletop board gaming world. So thank you, everybody, for joining, and I hope you come back again for the next episode of Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs> <laughs>